Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hello, everyone. And welcome again to this very special episode of The Shift, the podcast that aims to tell the no-holds-barred truth about being a woman post-40. Brought to you live from the Daffodil at the Times and the Sunday Times Cheltenham Literature Festival. I'm creator and host of The Shift, Sam Baker, and I'd rather say I'm really bloody excited to be up here with today's guest, entrepreneur, CEO, fashion and beauty expert, I'm wearing a red lip in honor, presenter and author, Trini Woodall. <laughs> I'm pretty proud that this was the first event on this year's program to sell out, and I know it had absolutely got all to do with me, but that's fine. Um, just a little bit of a big up to Trini. Trini bounded onto our screens in 2001 with her friend Susanna Constantine, when they created What Not To Wear, a groundbreaking TV makeover show that showed women all over, at first the country, and then the world, how to look and consequently feel better. In 2017, at the age of 53, when many women are starting to feel sidelined and overlooked and even shoved out of the workplace, Trini founded the phenomenal Trini London, an online beauty business aimed at women over 35. Now, one of the fastest growing beauty brands in Europe, Trini London is rumored, rumored, God, I got my words wrong, rumored to be worth $250 million, beloved by millions of women, 1.2 million followers on Instagram, 400,000 on YouTube. Not too shabby for a business idea investors didn't think would work because it wasn't aimed at millennials. Girl, kill me now, kill me now. Now, Trini has written Fearless book about style, about beauty, about life. A book about overcoming everyday barriers that we encounter along the way because Trini knows better than any of us that those things are intertwined. Welcome, Trini. I'm really, really excited. <laughs> Very happy to be here, Sam. Um, and can I just say, Trini got off a plane from America yesterday. He's getting on a plane to Australia later on today and looks... Absolutely bloody fantastic. Oh, I tell you, there's a, there's a regime, there's a whole routine. A JFK in the loo, it starts. <laughs> and it's, you know, my product. But then it follows by a silicone mask, which this time I had to get in gold. So I sit on the plane and I don't care what class I'm in, I put this silicone gold mask on. And um, 
and you know, just pack it all in, really. It's the only thing. <sighs> it's amazing. It's amazing. Whatever it is, I need it, definitely. I wanted you to tell me you'd had loads and loads of surgery so I could at least have some sort of perverse moral high ground. No, not surgery yet. Other things, Botox, things like that, but not surgery, no. I don't know if I could be cut. Oh, we'll see. You never know anything until you go there. So, you know, yeah. Never say never. Well, fantastic. You um, have always said that your goal is to make women feel better about themselves. When did you start feeling better about yourself? Oh, good question. I kind of, in the book, I talk about decades, and probably my worst one was teens and 20s, because it was a, a time of liking myself the least and feeling furthest away from the ground as I walked, you know. Um, not that I was on this cushion of air, but just that I would tumble as I hit the next step. And probably my 30s, things begun to get better, but I, I sort of went from one extreme to another. I went from feeling really full of what we have called imposter syndrome, I don't love that title, but just feeling not entitled to be wherever I was, to overproving myself, trying to overprove myself in my 30s. And then my 40s was learning to be a mum, but juggling and getting that balance. So really it's my 50s that I'm loving the most and soon to be my 60s in February. So it's, it's just, it's like a cheese. It's like a good cheese. Yeah. <laughs> Not a stinky one. Well, no, I can't do Stilton, but it's like a good brie, you know, as I mature. I don't know what stage it would get too smelly. So are you one of those people, which I have to say pretty much applies to almost every single person I've had on the podcast so far, who just would not go back to their 20s if you paid them? Absolutely not. Yeah. I mean, I think, though, that we learn from every decade. And, you know, it's very easy, respectively, to look back and think, what have I learned from that? I think what I find most astounding is looking at how my daughter is today compared to how I was. And she has this, she's been through quite a tricky time. I don't know how many of you have had kids going to university, but she has, you know, gone through a lot of bad anxiety. And, you know, retrospectively, I, talking to other friends of mine who maybe they had lost, their child had lost a parent, when they go to that year off, if they take a gap year, everything can come out, and it did with her. So she then came back and spent the year at home um, and now has gone to university. But aside from that, she has this innate self-love, which I never had at her age, you know? And I don't know if it's more that she, I think when you're one of many children, you compete, you know, you kind of look for that bit from your parents and you're always trying to find your place within a unit. And when you're, she's nearly a single child, she has a half brother, but he's 10 years older, so he doesn't tease her as relentlessly as she should be teased, but, <laughs> you know, but she has this, you know, I want to bottle it up and, and hope that she never loses it because it's a joy for me to see this. Like I will sometimes put my, um, uh, I had terrible acne when I was 13 to 30 and it really debilitated my sense of self. And, you know, if I was going on dates, I would check like lighting like this would be, you know, I'd go, want to go into, there was this 
there was this restaurant in Pimlico called Le Poulot Pot, my favorite restaurant for a date, because it had just candles, you know. There was no <laughs> overhead lighting. So whenever I was, you know, going on a new date, I'd say, well, let's go to Le Poulot Pot, not Camelario, which had very bright yeah. Italian lighting. Um, and sometimes I will say to her, darling, don't pick your spots. And she said, you, you take the worry of your youth onto me, stop it. That is amazing. Yeah, yeah. Where did she get that from? God only knows, really. I don't know. But it's, I look at it in, you know, it is coupled with that anxiety. And I think there's a lot more anxiety for kids today um, from, you know, that sort of, for me, it was her 16 to 18 being in COVID. And that's quite an important time. That's a time of discovery I had in my life for many things. And she, I think, emotionally... Um, I think, oddly, I, this is my personal feeling, that she's in one way emotionally very mature, but in other ways, when you, she's lost two years of another side of emotionally growing up, which now she's doing at uh, 19. A friend of mine had a 16, her son was 16 during that big lockdown period, and they had a big row at one point, and he said, so it's all right for you, Mum. I'd have lost my virginity by now. <laughs> so... <laughs> Oh. It is that kind of weird, older in so many ways, mm. but yeah, I don't, I, it's probably not the, it's not the right word, but um, I don't want to say retarded, but I can't think of another word, kind of held back almost in some yeah. ways of development. Yeah. Not regress, but just sort of, uh, yeah. yeah. So, do you think... How, what do you think the impact has been on Lila of watching her mum be, and obviously you can't speak for her, but of watching her mum do what you have done in the last six, eight years? Um, from her perspective? Yeah. I, mean, I will remind, I will tell you a conversation yesterday, which is, because she's at university in Spain, I'm here for a day and you've come off a plane, you're doing this festival and I'm going to see you for five hours. So that's, that can yeah. be her perspective, yeah. which will then be, she might throw in afterwards. Um, and when Jenny brought me up, which is, Jenny was, came as a maternity nurse and stayed for 19 years, and is <laughs> like Lila's grandmother, because my mother had Alzheimer's um, when she was older. And Jenny knows which food she liked at whatever age, and I didn't. Yeah. So there's that, yeah. and then there'll be five minutes later, I love you more than life, mommy, I'm sorry. You know, so it's, we have a very strong relationship. We speak about eight times a day whenever I'm away. Um, and so she's interesting because she will go from, so when we're out and about, and when Lila was younger, I was still doing TV. So we would be out and about, and maybe there would be, you know, photographers, things like that that kind of stuff. And I would always want to just not let her feel that. When her dad died, I turned the newspaper thing off on her laptop because I didn't want her to read articles about her dad. So I've always been, over the years, a slightly protective. And in the end, children and teenagers are going to find out what they find out. And, you know, so you, you've just got to let that develop. But you have that in, in, intuitive thing of wanting to really protect your child. Um, but I think she also 
um, if ever I'm going down the street and somebody will come up, and I might sometimes occasionally ignore them if I'm with Lila, if they call my name, because I will have the sense of responsibility that it's her time. But she'll say, Mummy, that woman, you should stop because she said hello to you, or she called your name. So Lila has this weird sense of responsibility of the Trini tribe, which she sometimes calls the cult, um, you know, just like her and her brother. It's like, Mummy, there's one of the cult. You know, it's their sort of thing. And, but she has, it's sort of been in her upbringing all the time, this thing, so that's normal to her. And there's always, and they all know Lila really well. And the interesting thing about this community is they're vested in her. We're sort of vested yeah. in each other. And during COVID, that became very intimate because, you know, we were all at home being the person we had to be for all these different members of our family. And it was the one place that we could be ourselves. So, you know, I spoke a lot about if you, you know, fed up with being the mother, the sister, the partner, whatever, go on to a Trini tribe and just be who you want to be. You know, mm. it's like, Sometimes we lose who on earth we want to be because everyone wants us to be so many different people and there's not much left. And we think, how do we find that, you know? Um, do you think that's why the 50s as a decade can be such a empowering, change-laden decade? Because you're kind of, for many women, not obviously the ones who didn't have children until their 40s, but for many women, you're coming out of that being pulled in all those directions, you know, like mother, cleaner, cook, you know, all of those things. I think it, it depends entirely what is in your life at your 50s. And every person presents differently. You know, I have good friends who are phenomenal businesswomen and they don't have children. I have other friends who have ended their marriage in their 50s and it's been very traumatic. I have other friends whose you know, kids have gone off to university and they feel bereft. So it's, it's a very defining moment and it can make, it can be very many different paths. But I think also we can on one hand feel we really know ourselves, but that knowledge can sometimes lead to a disappointment of I want to be more and how do I get there? Or it can be, I like where I'm at, I know myself and I don't worry what people think anymore. I remember when I I was having lunch with somebody who was four years older than me. And she said, you know, when you reach 50, you won't worry what people think so much. And, you know, it, it, will, be, it will be a release. And I remember when I turned 50, it was a tough year when I was 50 because a lot of personal things happened. But when I was 51, I remembered this conversation I'd had with her. And I thought, it's true. I don't, it's not I don't care what people think because that's dismissive of people, but I don't worry so much, you know, and not worrying what people think allows you to find out more who you are. It allows you to hold on to it and build on it. And when we worry all the time what people are going to think, it's because we don't have enough faith in who we are and we need to get to that faith in who we are. But I think the 50s is a time you can really do that. Whichever of those three or four situations you come from, you can do that. So I want to talk to you a bit about fear or being fearless, in fact. Is it, in fact, do you think fearlessness or is it an awareness of the things that you're afraid of and pushing through it? I think it's... Um, I mean, I came up with the title of the book 
Because I wanted to say, you know, fear less in your life. If we fear less in our lives, we can be more. It sounds flippant, but it's true. And then I read this amazing book, which is Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway. Mm. In I was in rehab in 87, and I read this book. Um, and it was that concept that even though you're feeling butterflies in your tummy or that physical manifestation of fear whenever we get it, still propel yourself forward, you know, because if we're frozen in it, I feel, in fact, we're never standing still, we're moving backwards. I do feel that. I feel there's, an, there's a sense of how can we propel ourselves forward. There's definitely a sense of finding stillness and meditation and, you know, for me to get a balance in my life, I've had to really work on that in my 50s. But I also know the importance that if I stand still too long, I will move backwards. So it's that movement. It's movement in everything. I was in New York yesterday with this woman I really respect who's a menopause. Um, she's an endocrinologist, but she's, to me, I must have interviewed 40 or 50 people who are experts in this field, and she's phenomenal in it. But our conversation mainly yesterday was about movement, brain movement, physical movement, the concept of movement and how important it is, and when we're in our 50s, how important that is. Um, let's, uh, let's continue with menopause there for a moment. What was your experience of menopause? Because I think you, like me, went into menopause comparatively uh, early, kind of mid-40s, yeah. right? Yeah, I did. I, um, I, had, I only found this out when I met um, Erica, but I had been to lots of different people and felt just my mojo had gone. I didn't have so much. I had a few symptoms, but you don't recognize things straight away. And the first one I went to, they put me on what I define as mare's urine, which was this, um, yeah. I don't know, it's, it was made of, I'm sure there was this, I don't know if, was it true? It was it was mare's pee, the, yeah, one of the ingredients. Yeah. I can't Prema. remember. It was the yeah. original one was called Premarin. Yes, exactly. Prema. No blood tests were done or anything. I just said how I felt. And then I went to another one. They just said, here's some antidepressants. Um, so I went to lots and lots of people. I went to some charlatans in London who gave me lozenges to put under here. And I suddenly came out in all the acne I'd had when I was 20. I mean, just, you know, lots of things. And then I had read this book called The Hormone Solution, which she wrote. And I went to see her in New York. And she just laid it out for me. She said, you know, you did 16 rounds of IVF. That's about 16 years off your cycle. Because each time you do a round of IVF, you produce mm. 10, 12 eggs. And that's what you're producing in a year. Never been told that. I wouldn't have given a shit because I have Lila. But it yeah. was interesting that, I, you know, my mother went in at 57 or something, yeah. and there I was at 43, 44, uh, 43 actually. And so I've been very focused on it. I know that it can be incredibly debilitating, and I will do everything. And I really do do everything. So, you know, I do all general hormone treatment but I stimulate my brain, I do meditation, I do strength training four times a week. I want my body, I want to look after my body tremendously so that it can look after me. My mother was sort of 75 and having difficulty getting up the stairs. She had Alzheimer's as well, of vascular dementia. So I am quite aware of brain fog could be something else. And I really look at what can I do to stimulate my brain what can I do to take as a supplement for my brain? And I'm always, you know, we, it's this thing as well. I talk about, 
I think I put a chapter in the book, because I did put so many things there. But it's about a fixed mindset versus a growth mindset. And I think my mother had a fixed mindset from about 60. Yes. You know, yeah. she sort of got into this zone, and she always felt quite old for me, my mother. Yeah. And I, I, when we took look at things like technology and that moment when you're on your phone and you're saying, uh-huh, and we would then rely on our child to do that for us quicker and things like that. And I, I feel the more I am totally responsible for everything in my surrounding, the more empowered I feel. So if that's the tiniest thing of understanding the new upgrade of the iPhone. So the new iPhone released three weeks ago. It has five different things that change that are on your phone. So I go and look on Apple to see what they are, you know, because then I can do them quicker. And then what is fantastic is when I do one and my daughter goes, so, so the wow. other day, like, there's some Harry Potter things you can say to get your torch working, alumni yeah. or whatever, and it, it puts your torch on. I mean, this really will impress any teenage child, okay? Wow, um, I'm impressed. Just like... <laughs> but, but just things like that where mm. it's about that feeling also of being totally connected with the world in every way. And the more that we feel we not, the more we can emotionally and physically retreat. And going back to Alzheimer's, because I'm going to go back to this, uh, mm. this friend of mine who's the first one I talked about who doesn't have a child who has a big career, who is the 17th woman ever to found a company and IPO it. So that means there have only been 17 women who have done that. And she's in biotech, and one of her drugs is an Alzheimer's drug. But... She's done endless research, and she is a she worked on the genome project at Cambridge. She's the smartest woman that I know. As a as a you know, you kind of look at them, and they're just oh, so smart. And she said about seventy percent of the research of of research they've done, seventy percent of Alzheimer's can be prevented if you have an incredibly active brain that's connecting every single day with at least ten people. You know, that you're having to get your brain to go into the frame of those 10 different conversations, which will remind you of different things in your life, which will stimulate different parts of your brain, your short-term memory, your long-term memory, what, you know, challenging you on a conversation, whatever it might be. So, that point you just made about growth mindset and fixed mindset is so important because you watch so many older people just decide. It's almost like they make a decision that the world isn't quite for them anymore or, oh, that's too technical or, oh, well, I'm now I'm going to retire and I'm going to stop learning mm. or whatever. And I think that you can literally see the world, you know, them shrink as their world shrinks and then that becomes self-fulfilling. And it's very easy to get there because mm. our world can become smaller and can become more intimate and safer. And, you know, like the world we live in today right now, this month, you know, things feel generally very unsafe. There's, it's such an awful, you know, I yeah. wake up every morning and I obsessively look in the news. When I was in New York, I got back to my hotel room and I spent three hours looking at CNN. And you think, the weight of that the weight of looking at what's happening in the world 
It's just that, it, all that constant, instant access. I mean, I often wonder, not for too long because it's too depressing, what the, what 9-11 would have been like if we'd had social media. Yeah. I mean, it just would have been horrific. But what's interesting, because I remember 9-11 very well. I remember I was in Guildford in a, a shopping centre with Susanna doing a What Not to Wear show. And I remember we went into the staff canteen and for three hours we watched the TV. Yeah, You know, news, I just remember yeah. that being gripped. So even though, you know, it's our phone and in a weird way, a more isolating way to absorb information, yeah. you know, when you were in the canteen and everyone was watching or turning to somebody, sharing the horror of what you're seeing. And in a way, perhaps our phone, to an extent, the negative impact is we bottle up more the absorption of all that information. Yeah, Pros and cons to technology, hey? Yeah, I mean, the phone is a straight, strange device, isn't it? Because on the one hand, it's isolating, but on the other hand, it's a portal for community. You know, so it's a portal for me, for the Shift community yeah. and all the women, the millions of women who download the Shift. For you, it's a portal to Trini Tribe. For your cult members, it's a portal to you. No, so it's it gives and it takes. I think I think it gives more than it takes. I think that the idea of, um, and you will find this having started a business or two, um, <laughs> that whereas before I would need to be in a certain location doing certain things, mm -hmm. I can do, you know, fifty things on my phone to run a business. And I can be anywhere in the world and I can be doing a tremendous amount of very different things through that phone. So to me, it gives freedom to be flexible, to feel connected. I think, yes, I, I see the pluses more than the minuses with, yeah. with the phone. I want to talk to you a bit more about the business, but before we do, I want to touch on what not to wear because with the benefit of, of hindsight, what not to wear was immensely radical. Mm -hmm. It was at a time when, you know, I was a magazine editor and the fashion industry and those kind of big glossy magazines who, of which I was not part, not fashion enough, we, you know, they had such a stranglehold on what we thought, what we put mm -hmm. on our faces, what we wore, what was fashionable, you know. At that point, if they said skinny jeans went out of fashion, they went out of fashion like mm -hmm. that, mm -hmm. rather than sticking around for 20 years. And you and Susanna came in, and you questioned that constantly. Mm -hmm. You constantly, you know, were rude to Karl Lagerfeld, which, frankly, he deserved it. And, but now we see it all the time, because mm -hmm. we've, got, we've got social media, we've got podcasts, we've got Instagram, of that, how much do you think that what not to wear experience shaped who you are, who you became, also who what Trini London became? Um, Sorry, long no, question. it had it had very different impacts because on one hand it helped me. What it trained me to do is to get to know women very quickly. So when you do TV, you meet your contributor, and you have to really, really quickly build up an intimate relationship so you can understand what you should do for them. So 
you read body language, you read body signs, how somebody speaks, but what they're really feeling. And it, probably of all the things it gave me, so when I did that in England, and the shows were very different, and now it's a trend on TikTok that it was the most horrific show, taken a little out of context of what <laughs> it did. Um, and I feel I got a certain sense of when, as women, we might have a shift in our confidence or something that just makes us question ourselves a bit. What are those points in our life when those things might happen? And I started to have in the back of my head this thought. And then Susanna and I wrote books as well, just on those kind of things. But then when I left England and we'd stopped doing What Not to Wear because we'd done it for seven years and done ITV and then got Gwen and 10 Years Younger came out. So there was suddenly lots of these shows and Susanna and I were like, what are we going to do next? This is sort of all we knew how to do. And we'd taken this tiny show to MIPCOM, which is a TV festival in Cannes, and it was picked up um, by a number of different countries. And I thought they'd pick up the format, but they said, can you come and make it? So we went from doing the show in the UK and then thinking we're washed up, hitting 40 or whatever, to doing this show around the world. And Susanna and I were the main breadwinners in our family. And we didn't really have an alternative. We could have gone back to writing, but it was just you're on your trajectory and that's all what you know how to do and also what we love doing. So we went to these random countries, um, amongst them four years in Israel and um, are next to that kibbutz that was hit. So I found this whole, you know, um, and in India and in Poland, Scandinavia, Australia. And in each of these countries, whatever the, the religion, whatever the, you know, in Israel, I was on the West Bank and in Tel Aviv, you know, in India, I was with a Hindi and a Muslim and Jainism and different women, all with different physical and um, emotional attitudes to their place in society. So it taught me a lot. It taught me so much more actually than just doing the show here. But every time when we did these shows, um, when you're taking a woman on a journey, she's going to have very different relationships with each part of her body. So we, I, th I don't know if I've met a single woman who doesn't at some stage in her life have an element of body dysmorphia and how she looks at her body and regrets or loves or loves a little bit less. Um, and so makeup was the first thing that you could frame for a woman to be able to see herself differently. So when you had that reveal moment um, and, you know, you took down the curtain, she, you know, women look at their face because a lot of women don't want to look at their body in a mirror. So they'd look at their face and then they'd feel hopefully happy. So I knew how important that was. And we used to have all these different makeup teams, you know, in Israel, we had Mac. In Poland, we had Ignot. In Australia, we had, I can't remember, Estee Lord or something. And they'd all be young makeup artists, and they'd all do the, the look of the season. You know, whether somebody was 18 or 80, they would do, oh, it's red lip this season. And I'd be like, this is, they're all different, these women. What are you doing? And, and then we'd be going in that room, and I'd be redoing everything and just saying, look at their skin, hair, and eyes. They're all different. So I think... You know, and when we got to know these women, lots of them talked about how 
why they did or didn't wear makeup and whatever. So they'd see their makeup, then they'd see their hair, and then they'd see their body. So if you could get that sort of beginning of let's get some love back into you, and then you're happy to then see this hair change, which hopefully generally, unless we had atrocious hair teams, worked out okay, but there were some disasters. Especially in Holland, they made some people with very auburny red hair. It was really some weird outcomes. And I was <laughs> like, oh my God, back at the hair wash, trying to get the dye out. Um, and then, you know, they'd see their body and think, okay, I'm ready to see something or not. So I felt the power that makeup has, but not makeup as in a mask, makeup as in an ex a sort of expression of your best self. And so I, at the same time, I used to stack my makeup and I would be in my bathroom before we went on any trip and I would put things in pots, like I'll get my foundation, not add in some vitamin C and there weren't peptides and some ceramides and other things. And I'd just make this consistency and I'd stack them together in a Muji thing, put tape on them. And I'd do my makeup that way and everyone say, I'd be in a bathroom, people say, oh, what's that? And I'll go, this is my makeup, you know, in a way that you're this buddy entrepreneur, but you haven't done anything about it yet. And they'd say, where can I buy it? And I'll go, you know, one day, one okay. day. I mean, fashion and beauty is so denigrated, isn't it? So looked down on as, as kind of shallow or frivolous or not important. But it's... Well, like you're the chapter in your book about hair, it is, I don't know whether it's called after the Fleabag quote, I assumed it was, it's called Hair is Everything. Mm -hmm. And it is, isn't it? Mm -hmm. It is everything. It, it can make or break your day and it can make or break pitch meeting, it can make or break anything, mm -hmm. everything. Mm -hmm. I think we can... I mean, ultimately, it's all a reflection of how we feel inside. You know, we can put on a few outfits on a Sunday, trying things out and say, I'll wear those all week. And then on Tuesday, you put it on, you think I gained or lost 10 pounds or I, this, you know, you suddenly are a totally different woman. You put that on, you think, what the fuck was I thinking? That's hideous. You know? <laughs> and it's, it's, then you just have to take logic by its hands and say, it is in my goddamn head and it's not me. How it's my thought. It is not me. And I just, I had to do this a lot with Lila when she went through her anxiety and I had to learn it too. And I learned it first when I went to rehab, but just that, and I always called it, I mean, it's become much softer now because when I, Lila went and chatted to somebody last year, but I always say it's this raven on my head and it's like this, it's like this black bird. It's not a nice thing. And it's, and I do shut up like this. So, so then when Lila was having her anxiety and she started to see this amazing woman and she was doing that, EM, you know, that tapping stuff. And I said, darling, when you have that thought, you know, just go. And she goes, but mommy, this woman says to me that maybe it's my younger self and I should nurture it. And I said, okay, nurture the power. Yeah. <laughs> I thought, oh, sorry. But, but it is that separating out and it's very challenging sometimes because you think this is me because it's inside my head, but it's not because... If you know, if you take the logic of a situation and you see what the, your thought is around it and how much it's changed, you have to acknowledge it's not you, it's that thought from something else. And, and I do try and think about that a lot when I have that thought inside my head. I could have done with you in my hotel room this morning, I have to say. <laughs> um, what would you say, what would you advise... So women who are in midlife, you know, 40s, 50s, 
asking for a friend, maybe their body's gone a bit tits up overnight, you know, so you know that, well, you don't know that thing because you look fantastic and you've got six pack, but that thing where you can literally wake up in the morning and you're like, hang on, this is like this flesh duvet and it definitely wasn't there yesterday. Um, advice, please, for a friend. All right. Um, so, I have two thoughts on this one. One is that we've got to lean into where our body is at and embrace it. So, you know, one could be on a mission, one could be on that once a week drug, one could be on a diet, one could be thinking this is my body and I'm really happy with it. But in your wardrobe, remove everything else that's gonna bring you down. So even if you just, they go under your bed or they go somewhere, I believe very strongly that you want to, even if there's 10 things in your wardrobe, that those things bring you joy. And they just have to. So when your body, in your mind, you're allowing your body to let you down and make you have less self-worth, then what's that thing you will grab that we just think, well, this is my best color, or this is my, this is a great shape trouser for me. It's it just having those instead of having the defeating things there, because the defeating things will amplify that feeling. So I'm going to say, I'm going to say that on one hand, that's my easy answer, but I'm going to give you a challenging answer as well, which is that I think we have choices we can make in our 50s. And I know you're not all in your 50s, and there are some that younger, so, and some a little bit older, maybe. Um, but we can lean in and be accepting and saying, this is us and we're, we're not going to change anything in our life because we're happy in our life. But then you've got to weigh up with how much that gets you down. Or you can say, my body can't process things the same way in terms of health and how you process glucose in menopause is fundamentally different from how you do before how it turns into fructose, what happens. I'm not a scientist, but I just read a lot about this, of women who might think, but I don't want to not have that glass of wine, or I don't want to not have that, because that makes me happy. Um, how, you know, alcohol consumption in your 50s and beyond affects you mentally and physically so much more than it does in your 20s, 30s, and 40s. And there are women in their 50s and 60s who want to challenge it and say, I want to prove I can be that person I was. So you don't want to change things because you then think you're giving in. So I get that mindset. But I think if we acknowledge that our bodies change, can't process things as much, and we need to really look after them. We need to give them their best to look after us. So does that mean changing your relationship with certain things that you have had a great relationship with in the past and saying, but ultimately, do I want to wake up with less brain fog? Do I want to wake up with a mindset which is like, what's happening today? Whatever, bring it on, bring it on. Do I want that clarity in my vision? And does that weigh higher than an indulgence in things that ultimately ultimately aren't good for your mental and physical health. So that's my more challenging answer, and that's for every woman 
in the room to ask herself of that relationship. Because for me, depression and feeling a bit down is something I've had in my life at different phases. And I definitely don't want to have it moving into my 60s. I, I don't. And I know that I don't have to. But then you just have to weigh up what you're going to do. What's that balance for you? And you have to ask yourself that question. So that getting up and thinking, whatever, it's the superficial one is, get 10 things in front of you that make you feel good and just have those there. Um, and then there's the other one. There's the other one, the one that's more likely to work. Yeah. How do you feel about this? How do I feel about this? I feel like... Um, huh. I feel like I spent about 15 minutes in front of the mirror this morning going, oh, my God, Trini's got a six-pack. Um, and I've just had um, a lurgy, and I look like shit, and I basically beat myself up for 15 minutes, and then I ate a banana, and I left, which was a completely non-constructive waste of, of a total waste of time. So I never met you before, but then I walk into that room there, and I do my doctor's, <laughs> and I think... She's cool. I love her trainers. God, she's got great skin. I like my trainers yeah, too. Yeah, really good. <laughs> and I wish I still had your hair in terms of how much you have. So it is amazing how we have that That's interesting, comparing our inside with other people's outside. And we are our harshest critics generally. I don't know anyone who could put up their hand here and say, somebody else is a harsher critic. If so, you should leave that relationship. <laughs> but, you know, I just like, um, you know, yeah. it, we are. And... And it's yeah. really important to stop and appreciate ourselves. And that, I mean, I will say that, being very challenged by that myself. I have a, a CMO, a, a, a head of marketing in our business. And I can be relentless in what, what are we doing and challenge what we're doing. And she goes, Trini, can you take a step back for a second and see how far we've come? Yeah. You know, and I'll go, but we haven't, uh, we've got to. Uh, and she'll go, just, just appreciate how far you've come for a second. And that's my challenge because I will, where I'm hardest on myself is that. So I will do that with where I'm at in what I feel I still need to do with what you all have done in the hotel room this morning. Yeah, it's... Uh, did, you, did you ever have imagined you'd be where you are now, say, even 10 years ago? I've never been good at manifestation. So, um, oh, thank God you said that. Yeah, so <laughs> when, I, when I saw these, as I was scrolling through Instagram, this woman who I came across many years ago, who was this influencer and now has sort of 14 million followers. And let me tell you about scripting. I'm going to write it like, now this is, uh, it was 2000 and this and this happened. And I built this orphanage and I did, and I'm like, <laughs> because there's a part of me, there is a part of me that thinks, if you live in having done it already, it will bring it closer to you. And there's a secret interest mm. in it. There is a secret mm. interest in it from my most cynical self that um, if you feel it, it's closer to being in your life. And I know that from a few tiny things. But I never sat down at... Um, in 2013 
in the midst of going to my sort of 50th investor who's saying it's a shit idea, it's never going to happen, thinking, you know, there was definitely this part of me that thought it is going to happen, otherwise I would have given up. And I do believe it's valid and I do believe I have a good idea. But there was a barrage of people who weren't agreeing with me. So, yeah. so the, it's always a challenge. But I think where we are now, um, I hadn't imagined it because I, had, I kind of don't look three years down the road. You know, I look a year or mm -hmm. two years down the road. We are nearly out of time, so I'm going to ask you the questions that I always ask yep. at the end. What is your emotional age? Um, I'm going to say 30. I have it always in the back of my mind. I, I want to say ageless because I, I go like this, but I also sometimes think I feel like 30. But, but I hate putting age on things. So I find it a very difficult question to answer. Yeah. <laughs> um, where are you? Where am I? Oh, I think I'm probably either my age, which is 57, or around about six. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I think that's a far better answer. <laughs> I've had more practice, thank you. Um, not that I can imagine you ever have time to read books on top of everything else. But can you give us a book recommendation? Um, the Idiot, which is a Russian novel. <laughs> um, and I read it when I was in hospital for something, because otherwise I wouldn't have, I'd been too scared to open Russian novels. But I, I loved it. So I have four books I love. So I love that book because I love the fact that everyone thought he was stupid and he was, it's just a, incredible. And I love Russian literature. I just felt so proud I actually turned the fifth page. Um, <laughs> I loved a book called Shadow of the Wind, which was written years mm. ago, Carlos something, and it was about this pursuit of this book. It was such a beautiful book. Um, and No Name by Wilkie Collins, because it's a story of revenge. Mm -hmm. And it's a woman becoming a man in Victorian era to seek revenge. And then I love Stefan Zweig. So I love uh -huh. Beware of Pity, which is uh, he's Dutton Chess, which is one of his most famous one historical novels, but he writes exquisitely. So a mixture. And do you read when you're not in hospital? Um, yes, I, like this summer I read um, Demon Copperhead. Oh, isn't that amazing? Which is an incredible book, actually. Amazing yeah. book. I've had her on the shift, if you haven't heard it. Um, what advice would you give younger women? Um, I'd say 99% of everything you worry about never happens. Great advice. Mm -hmm. uh, who is your, what I would call an old bird role model? So picture Trini at 80. Iris Apfel. Iris Apfel. I mean, I want to be Iris Apfel like since, since I was 12, probably. <laughs> She hundred and she's hundred and two. Yeah, Amazing. she's phenomenal because she's so smart, and she's yeah, and she has a passion. She has such a huge passion. When you see her kind of going in stores in New York and you know getting these three hundred bracelets, and she was doing this at ninety, talking to you about texture, and I just love her. She's great. What's your superpower? My energy. 
That is not wrong. Um, and last one, how many fucks do you give? I say so many every day, so I, mean, <laughs> I, I say more fucks than I give. <laughs> Very good answer. <laughs> um. Thank you for listening. You can hear a new episode of The Shift each Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please do rate, review and follow because it really does help other people find us. And if you'd like more of The Shift in your life, head over to theshiftwithsambaker.substack.com and sign up for weekly newsletters, podcast extras and more.